And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. This podcast was first uh, motivated by a number of emails that I got from listeners and readers. And it is about an article that was written by Jason Zweig uh, for the Wall Street Journal. And the title is, Is Value Investing for the Birds? And I was about to respond to that and do a simple kind of a Q&A answer uh, along with another nine Q&A answers. And I realized that this topic, this question about value investing, whether it's uh, the thing to do or not, uh, is more than just a, a minor consideration for investors. We're trying desperately to do the right thing for the future. So I'm going to take it beyond just a conversation about value versus growth. And I'm going to end up later in this podcast addressing the, 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 the question of what rate of return can we reasonably consider for the long term when we're trying to build a business plan, a, a savings plan, a financial plan. I don't care whether you're retired or you're just getting started. It's an important decision to make what return we consider reasonable. And then we got to figure out how to get it, of course. But I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs out of this. Uh, it's a great article. Um, but we'll have a link to it so that uh, you can read the whole thing. But Jason says... Faster-growing, higher-priced stocks have outperformed by such huge margins recently that the long-run advantage of value stocks has withered away. Will that last? He asks, and he answers, probably not. He also says here that over the past five years, the S&P 500 growth index, led by such gazelles as Amazon.com and Google's parent, Alphabet, has generated an average 14.2% return annually. The S&P 500 value index, full of such mastodons as J.P. Morgan Chase and AT&T, gained 8.7% percent annually. At this point, growth has slightly outperformed value over the past 20, 25, 30, 35, and 40 years as well. Well, that certainly seems to, to stick a pin in the, <laughs> in the story uh, about, uh, about the advantage of value. Well, at the same time as this article came out, I happened to receive my annual copy of what I call my favorite book, the annual DFA Matrix book. And what that book is about is the returns of major asset classes, some going back 20 years, some 50 and some 80 as a matter of fact, about 60 asset classes 
going back uh, uh, back 20 years, uh, about 16 asset classes going back 50, and 15 going back 80 years. So it's a lot of documented evidence. Remember, it's never proof of anything in the future, but it is certainly evidence from the past. And the reason that I think this information is so important. It is, it is this historic evidence that investors and advisors and even mutual funds use to make decisions about how they allocate their assets or how they recommend others invest their assets. Because understanding all of this historical information is one of the most important topics investors need to know in order to plan for the future. But there's a problem, and it's a big one, and that is that past performance does not guarantee, now, I mean, I've got to emphasize that word, guarantee future performance. We all know that, but we still have to make a judgment about what we can reasonably expect. That expectation is going to have an impact on how much we think we have to save uh, in order to retire at a, at a certain age, and we want to have a certain amount of income, and we want to have a certain amount to leave to others. I mean, we have all these dreams or plans, however we want to look at them. And, and, and the reality is that the realistic expectation that we create is not going to necessarily be, be based on the numbers that are likely to be what you experience in your lifetime. And we have the ability to go through that exercise and get a sense of that so that we can look at our thought process on what we're doing in terms of, of planning for the future. And out of all of that, I promise, we will certainly address the value versus growth question. But I want to take you back. I want to pretend something for a few minutes. Let's go back to the beginning of 2000, January 1. Bill Clinton is still the president. He's about to turn it over to President George W. Bush. And this is the point at which you and your advisor, or you and your spouse, or you and your personal calculator are going to make some decisions. And the decisions that you make are going to be based on the past. We have nothing else to base it on unless we believe in somebody's ability to see absolutely into the unknown. So what would you have concluded about your future based on your knowledge of the past, whether it be the previous 20 years, the previous 60 years. Now, for purpose of this discussion, let's go back 20 years. Let's go back, in fact, uh, if we go back 20 years, we could then ask ourselves what we would have assumed 
that we could get from our investments. And maybe what we would have done to be, to be realistic about making it a period long term enough that it was statistically meaningful, you might have gone back 25 years from 1975 to 1999. Yes, it was the golden age of investing. And yes, it was unusual, but when you've lived through it, it takes on a, a, a different level of, of reality. It's something you can almost touch and you, and you could imagine how it could happen again. So what did people know about that 25-year period? Well, we know the S&P 500 compounded at 7.2% and the total market index compounded at 17.3%. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing re rate of return. And, and we know that inflation was 4.8. Now that's, in fact, all those numbers are higher than we, than we would have expected at the beginning of that period of time. But that's what happened over that 25-year period. And what about other asset classes? Large cap value, these are DFA numbers, 18.7. Large cap growth, 17.4. Hmm, there's value doing better than growth for a long period of time. Small cap growth, 19.6. Small cap value, 22.3. Hmm, there's value beating growth again. Now, if you owned large cap blend, that would have been the S&P 500. Remember, that was 17.2. Uh, uh, small cap blend was 20%. So small cap and value added extra returns. So that's what you knew. And if you uh, looked at international markets, the MSCI World XUS was 15.2%. Small cap blend, combination of value and growth, 19.3. Uh, another plus for small cap. Now what about at the fixed income end? Because if you were close or in retirement, you probably weren't going to be all equities. So you had to take a look. How did T-bills do during that 25-year period? 6.8. Long-term government bonds, 9.4. And as expected, long-term corporates, the high grades, 10.6. When I say as expected, I mean would it be expected to make more than the governments, and they did. Now, that, that's, that would motivate you or, or, or probably encourage you to Assume some relatively high rates of return were possible. But what if you wanted to look back beyond that particular 20-year period or 25-year period? What if you wanted to go back to 1928? Because we had those numbers from 1928 to 1999. And the S&P 500 was 9.7%. Total market index, 95 a lot of people believe that owning the total market index is better than the S&P 500. Actually, their return has been very, very close. In fact, over long periods of time, they've been the same. Large cap value, 
was 11% versus the 9.7 for the S&P. Small cap blend was 11.9. Small cap value was 13.1. Long-term corporates, 5.9. And long-term governments, 5.4. Now there, you, you could look back at two periods of time that could have felt important. The previous 25 years are going all the way back to 1928. And I think you would have concluded that you would have gotten a return that would have supported a 4% distribution rate, if not a 5, by the way. But certainly you would expect that the S&P 500 would get about 10 Maybe not the 17.2, but 10 to 12. And that bonds would give you a good shot at, I don't know, maybe, maybe 7 8%. That would be a lot less than they had paid. Those were the long-term bonds. And probably short-term bonds, you ought to be able to get 6 or 5.5. That was the easy assumption for people to make at that point. Now, as I give you the returns over the following 20-year period, uh, or the, actually, uh, I'm, I'm looking from uh, 2000 to, two, uh, to 2018, not quite 20 years, um, I want you to remember that whatever decision you made the first thing you walked into was a terrible, terrible decade for the S&P 500. In fact, for the 10 years ending uh, 2009, it was about a 1% per year loss. So that did, certainly did not fulfill the expectations that people had uh, at, in 2000 when they were predicting the fina their financial future. And for them, particularly if they're close to or in retirement, the idea of having 40 years to accumulate whatever you, whatever you needed is all of a sudden uh, becomes, I mean, there's no, there's no compromise for bad returns in the short term. And that's what happened. But let's look not only at the DFA numbers going back to 19. 26. Look, let's look in this 20-year period at both the value and the growth, well, and also the blend, by the way, which is a combination of, uh, of growth and value. Because if you're not trusting value itself, maybe you ought to at least seriously consider blend, which will be, again, in most cases... Um, a 50-50 split of growth and value. So for the period from 2000 to 2018, the S&P 500 compounded at 4.9%. The Russell 1000, which is a blend of value and growth, compounded at 59 the Russell 1000 value at 6.2 and 1000 growth at 5.1. Advantage value. The Russell 2000, uh, a small cap index, the 
blend compounded at 7.4. It was pulled down by growth. Growth compounded at 6.1. And the value compounded at 8.2. A big advantage to value. Then if we look at the uh, uh, some of the DFA numbers, and they build portfolios, their index is built in a different way than, for example, the large value uh, at Russell or the large value at the S&P 500. But over that 20-year period, the compound rate of return for large cap value was 7.3, and they have their own constructed large cap growth index, which was 6.5. The DFA small cap Value was 11.3, small cap growth 9.3, another advantage to value. And the blend was 10.3. So for those people, again, who are, are, are not, if you, don't, if you don't want value, I hope you will at least take blend so that if it turns out that value is the premium producer, that you'll have at least some of it in your portfolio. In emerging markets, the DFA value fund or index, 13%, the growth 10.9. The uh, international large cap value, DFA 6.3, the growth 4.5. The small cap value, 10.1, this is internationally, and uh, the small cap growth was 7.8. So the evidence to me, and by the way, to Jason Zweig as well, is still that for the long run, uh, there is likely to be an advantage having some value in your portfolio. But more importantly, is to consider how people are feeling today about their expectations for future returns versus what they were feeling in 2000. It's a world of difference. Uh, I guess a person who today is thinking about retiring with a certain amount of money is going to have to be a very aggressive saver if their returns are going to look like the last 20 years. And unfortunately, unfortunately what we know is that that a lot of millennials, supposedly some 30% of them, are unwilling to put any money in equities at all because they know how bad it can be sometimes, like 2008 and 2009, and like 2000 through 2002. So they're not very hopeful. But wait a minute. What about the fixed income asset classes? Well, I guess in a sense, long-term government bonds... uh, held up fairly well with a 6.9% compound rate of return and the T-bills with a 1.6%. In fact, uh, for the period from 2010 through 2018, 
uh, it's, I think, a 0.3% uh, com compound rate of return. And the long-term corporates uh, did add some premium, 7.2, so three-tenths of a percent uh, better than, uh, uh, than governments. But you can see the challenge. Uh, a person putting together their plan for the future is not feeling as optimistic. I guess in this uh, growth versus value uh, debate that we're having, as I look at the past, I, I still conclude that uh, value has an expected premium. I think stocks have an expected premium uh, over, uh, over bonds, even though you would not know it from the S&P 500 uh, over the last uh, 20 years. You would have been better off in long-term governments uh, than the S&P 500. Most experts are predicting low returns for the S&P 500 over the coming years. Typically, they talk about over a decade. But if the future is anything like the past of any of these periods we're talking about, the last 20, the last 50, the last 80, there really isn't any reason to believe that growth is going to be better than value, and there's lots of reasons to believe that value is going to be better than growth. And I am not saying, particularly for people like myself, I'm 75, or people who are coming into retirement, maybe even people within 10 years of retirement, you certainly wouldn't want to have all your money in value, but for a young person, I can understand that they could decide that a combination of small cap and large cap value would, would not be a high risk investment. But I do believe that the equity, if you're going to have equity and if you're not going to overweight value, that you should at least take the blend position, whether it's large cap or small cap. Because I do think that there is going to be a need for that small additional return in a, in a period of time that maybe the S&P 500 is not going to be a very good producer. But whatever our choice of equity and fixed income asset classes, it's pretty clear that our ability to predict the future uh, is, is not very good. And the best protection against us getting it wrong is to massively diversify. Massively diversify between stocks and bonds, between uh, equity asset classes, small, large, value, growth, U.S. international, REITs, emerging markets. And to do all those things that we can to to make sure that we don't overweight to something that turns out to be a disaster. And that's, that is an important part of diversification. I do um, want to address a paragraph in Jason Zweig's article. He says, it's especially important in a world 
increasingly dominated by index funds and managers mimicking them for investors to separate themselves from the herd. Well, from my viewpoint, using index funds, if one had since 1976, in and of itself, just that one decision would have separated people from the herd. Uh, the herd of index investors will be tested. We've been in a long-term bull market, the best ever. And, and so the, the, the question then becomes, will those people, whether they invested in stocks, you know, the best individual stocks they know, or invested in index, equity index funds, will they survive the decline? Will they have the ability to be a true buy-in holder? My sense is this, that if you're going to be a true buy-in holder and separate yourself from the herd, then the key will be to be invested in a way that you don't have to think and get emotional about the pieces. You're never going to like the fact that the market declines in value and your portfolio is part of that. But it's much easier to make a mistake investing in individual securities. Remember, a lot of people rushed in to high-tech companies uh, in the late 90s. If people had simply purchased an index of all those companies rather than picking their favorite, they would have survived uh, to be profitable in the long run if they could continue to buy and hold. And so my advice is to find not only the way that's likely to create an, an, a return that is worthy of the risk that we take of being in equities versus fixed income, but to do it in a way that you can stay the course. That was John Bogle's goal for people, to find a way to invest that they will stay the course. I'm after the same thing. I'm just trying to get people to take a few baby steps to add some asset classes that with the ability to stay the course should, should give them a premium for that patience. Now, I want to make a recommendation. Um, I hope that you will share this with uh, some other investors who who have the uh, same question about value versus growth, but more importantly, people who are trying to put together some sort of plan and trying to figure out what is the compound rate of return I should expect from my portfolio. And I don't know that I gave you a magic number. In fact, I didn't, because I don't know. I do know this, or I believe this, that the smartest thing that I did 
because I didn't know what was going to happen, was to oversave. So just in case the market didn't give me what I expected, which was probably always more than it was likely to give, but if I didn't get what I expected and the market failed me, my saving didn't fail me, but the market did, I would have an opportunity to retire uh, at a lifestyle that, that my wife and I were hoping we'd have. And it didn't necessarily come from the market. Uh, a lot of it came just because of oversaving. And that may be the number one defensive step that we can take. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.